The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The, uh, the wide-angled shots that, that, you know, cable news was able to set up from a long distance away and these sort of wide shots of the Capitol and some people on the stairs and, and not seeing what was happening on Twitter. If you're experiencing it that day, seeing this unfold live and seeing these awful images of law enforcement being overrun, uh, that you could just watch on a lot of live streams or on clips that were being posted on Twitter, right? That's the way that you saw what was actively happening on the ground that day. And the Bureau was just so far behind on that. And I think it is this interesting thing, right? Because you don't want you don't want the Bureau over collecting and sort of just observing this information for the sake of it. But at the same time, if something this massive is just unfolding in open, on available open source channels that you can just watch, it seems like they're just really behind on that. And I think a lot of that has to do with you know, they're, they're, the way that they sort of handle technology um, internally and the way that, you know, they have stuff on the high side and the low side. I'm Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow at Brookings and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 24th, 2023. Last month, the Government Accountability Office released its latest report on the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, focusing on the failures of several government agencies to fully process and share information about a potential attack in the days and weeks leading up to January 6, 2021. I sat down with NBC News Justice reporter Ryan Riley, who's reported broadly on law enforcement issues related to January 6, and Lawfare's Quinta Jurassic. We discussed what we know about how and why law enforcement struggled in the lead-up to the insurrection and the challenges for the road ahead. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 24th, 2023, what we've learned about security and intelligence failures on January 6th. So uh, last month, the Government Accountability Office released a report entitled uh, Federal Agencies Identified Some Threats But Did Not Fully Process and Share Information Prior to January 6th, 2021. Uh, That actually strikes me as a pretty decent summary of what we know about the collection and processing of and response to the insurrection on January 6th. And we're going to talk some about that report. But before we do, I want to situate it in sort of the broader landscape of investigation investigative work that's tackled these intelligence failures related to January 6th. So um, Quinta, maybe to start with you, like how else have we learned about what went wrong? 
So this is actually, I believe, the seventh in a, a series of reports from the GAO. Uh, not all of the the reports are about security failures specifically, uh, but the the GAO has addressed them. There's a, another report, for example, on agencies' use of open source intelligence, meaning essentially, you know, stuff that is freely available on the internet. Uh, to prepare or not, as the case may be, for the insurrection ahead of time. Um, We've also seen documents coming out of committees that existed before the January 6th committee. Um, So the biggest document that I'm thinking of is a report that you and I wrote about, Molly, that I believe was in the spring or summer of 2021 from the Senate Rules and Homeland Security Committees that really goes into a fair amount of depth on what things looked like within the Capitol Police, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Pentagon. In the run-up to the 6th and on the day of, there's less in there about what happened inside the Justice Department and the FBI, because according to the committees, the Justice Department was not particularly cooperative. But that did provide a fair amount of information. There's also a sheaf of various Inspector General reports coming out of those agencies. Again, DOJ is kind of the laggard here, where I believe, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, we're still waiting on the Inspector General's report from the Justice Department oh, yes. about January 6th. Yes. <laughs> so that that looms. And then, of course, there is the actual January 6th report itself, which did not include a huge amount on security and intelligence failures in the run-up to the 6th. And Ryan has done some reporting that I would love to talk about about why that is. But there is a pretty substantial appendix in the report that provides some information, and the committee has also released a number of transcripts of interviews that they conducted with various security officials, including um, officials at Capitol Police, I believe at DHS, and uh, Dave Bowditch, who at the time was the deputy director of the FBI. So there's a fair amount of information out there, even though I think this has not been one of the more prominent parts of the story in the public eye. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. And Ryan, maybe I'll turn to you on this next one. So one of the arms of the investigation into the intelligence failures was done by the Select Committee to investigate the insurrection at the United States Capitol. But I think it's fair to say that those intelligence failures were not a major focus of that committee's final report. Um, How should we think about that choice by the committee to spend what I would characterize as comparatively little space in the final report on this question? I think political is how we should should think of that, uh, because I think that they were worried that focusing on any of these issues to do with, you know, the lack of preparation uh, that existed for the January 6th attack, I think would sort of deflect or take focus off of the question of Trump. And then, you know, you'd like to think at least that Americans are capable of holding two ideas in their head at the same time, you know, being that you can talk about Donald Trump's responsibility, but also there's this massive problem. And, you know, sometimes we shorthand it as an intelligence failure, but frankly, the raw intelligence was collected even to a certain extent. It was just not acted upon or organized well. And I think there's a lot of reasons that go into that. You know, one factor that is kind of sad, but I also think is definitely a part of this uh, is just the time frame over which this happened, right? Like, Federal, the federal government essentially shuts down for the second half of December, right? Like no one's doing any, everyone's all across the country. Remember, this is, this is, you know, late 2020. This is coming off of 
an awful year where everyone just wanted a break. So everyone's pretty checked out, I think, at the end of 2020, when a lot of this intelligence uh, is really popping off and, and really coming to fruition. And I think a part of this is just like, nobody was working really during that key period uh, leading up to January 6th. You know, by the time they come back, you know, there's that week between Christmas and the new year, which is uh, sort of, you know, a waste. And also simultaneously, you know, the Justice Department is distracted by this inside attack, essentially, right? They're at that time, you have Jeffrey Clark almost being installed as uh, the attorney general. There's this moment that still just really stands out to me. If you put it in the timeline and it's right before the January 6th attack, I think this would be the, the third on, on the Sunday. Um, and this is when we had that, you know, that knockdown drag out meeting at the White House uh, that evening on, on that on that Sunday where Jeffrey Clark was almost installed. And there had been a meeting on on Saturday and they had this, you know, they had this joint call that everyone gets together on. Uh, with the with the Defense Department, which has now become a big focus because the question of who was supposed to be in charge is is sort of up in the air, according to a lot of the a lot of the people who who ended up speaking uh, with investigators here. <laughs> but just you know, before that meeting and just after that evening, the two top officials uh, at the Justice Department were discussing whether or not they were still going to have their jobs within the next few hours and whether or not whether or not you're going to have a situation where they were going to install Jeffrey Clark, a man with no prosecutorial experience, you know, who uh, was an environmental lawyer, uh, uh, whether he was going to, and who thought that, you know, f- smart thermostats were stealing the election and also didn't know that dog sniffing, uh, that electronic sniffing dogs were a thing, which I also find fascinating until finally a, uh, an electronic sniffing dog uh, came to his household. Anyway, I, the point being that he had zero prosecutorial experience was way out of his depth and didn't understand basic factors about technology. And and that's essentially what it happened on that, on that Sunday during this critical meeting where they're supposed to be organizing what's going to happen um, ahead of uh, January 6th. They were just distracted. So, you know, after that meeting, you have the deputy attorney general, the acting deputy attorney general, go back and literally start packing up his office. Thought that was it, right? Thought they were out, figured there'd be a tweet sent and they were fired and they were out and that's it, you know? So you have this looming Saturday night massacre, except it's the middle of the afternoon on Sunday. And that was what was happening inside DOJ. So fair to say they're a bit distracted uh, in the three days before the January 6th attack actually took place. Ryan, you are referring to what we like to call around here that everyone in this story is named Jeff Meaden. Um, Quinta, <laughs> anything you want to add um, on this question of kind of how do we think about the um, choice by the January 6th committee to spend comparatively less time on this particular aspect of the investigation in their report? Yeah, I think this is something that we sort of saw coming from a ways off, but once it happened, I will say I was I was pretty surprised by the extent to which the committee downplayed or in some instances, I would argue, affirmatively misrepresented what happened in the run up to the six, including writing that, you know, there was simply no way that these agencies could have anticipated what was going to happen. And it all traced back to Trump personally. And arguing that there's no way that they could have anticipated that is simply not true. So I do think, as Ryan says, it's very much a political decision. It's a it reads to me as a decision to, you know, try to focus public attention on the figure of Trump individually. But I will say um, that what we've seen as a fallout from that is that it actually has given ammunition uh, to those on the right who want to discredit the report. You've seen uh, figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example go out there and say, you know, look, the the committee, they're trying to cover up 
these security failures. And they're they're tracing that back to Nancy Pelosi, which I, I don't think is a particularly strong argument. But it does mean that in my mind, this is kind of an unforced error on the committee's part. The other thing is that, you know, I don't actually think that focusing on law enforcement failures necessarily distracts from Trump because one of the things that you see if you look at this documentation, and we can talk about this, is that it really seems like Trump's shadow over all of these agencies was a huge part of what caused these failures, both in the sense that Trump had really pushed them to act aggressively during the 2020 protests over the death of George Floyd, um, and that agencies seemed to be really, really leery of leaning in aggressively again. And just in the sense that, you know, the FBI in particular, this was an organization that had seen its top ranks basically completely depleted. Um, People pushed out of the bureau, attacked relentlessly on Twitter by the president. And I think that that, you know, communicated very clearly, like, don't stick your neck out. And so that, you know, those, those threats and that kind of overbearing approach that Trump took towards these agencies created an environment in which there was really just not much of an incentive for people to lean in aggressively to the argument that these were, you know, that the the president's supporters posed a serious security threat. And so in that sense, I do think that arguing that there was a serious security failure in advance of the six is totally congruent with arguing that this was really about Trump. Yeah, and we're going to come back to some of these threads about kind of why we might have seen these failures. But I want to spend a little time now uh, turning to this GAO report that I mentioned earlier and just um, maybe, Quinta, asking you to summarize its principal findings. So at like a really high level, what agencies did the GAO look at here and what did it conclude about them? So the report looked at a number of different agencies, at uh, the FBI, at DHS, specifically the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis, the Capitol Police, and the Park Police, um, and I believe maybe a handful of others, but those are those are sort of the ones that it, it focuses on. And it comes away, I think the, the picture that I came away with is really that these are agencies that did not do the necessary legwork ahead of time so that DHS, for example, didn't designate the protests and the joint session of Congress to count the electoral votes is what's called a national special security event, um, which would have enabled sort of additional security procedures. It seems like these organizations, they did receive intelligence that something violent was potentially going to happen, but overall didn't really act on it. And sometimes also that intelligence was not communicated, not only between different organizations, but also within organizations. So the report notes that with uh, Capitol Police, I believe there's a plenty of instances where uh, Capitol Police you know, certain individuals within that agency had access to information, but didn't really pass it up or down the chain. Um, So for example, line officers and Capitol Police just didn't know what uh, their superiors knew about what might happen on that day. I will say one of the things that I found really striking, just because I've been interested in the how the Bureau handled or didn't handle the six is some some information in here about how the bureau received a number of tips from Parler, the social media company, the sort of which was uh, used commonly by you know far right folks and Trump supporters at the time. Um, and Parler had said 
uh, after the six that they had given the bureau a heads up that they were really concerned about what the the kinds of conversations that were happening on their platform. It's always been a puzzle to me, like. Where did that go? We never saw anything about what the FBI did with that tip. And it seems like, according to the GAO, <laughs> the FBI just kind of didn't do anything with it. That the this came into the San Antonio field office and they kind of looked at it and didn't log it correctly in their system and didn't really follow up on it. So it seems like, you know, Parler sent them this information saying, like, hey, we're really concerned about these threats on our platform. And the Bureau kind of just shrugged. Yeah, so I really want to sort of talk about this because I know it's something that you both have thoughts on, uh, this question involving the FBI. And so both in this report, um, in at least one other one from the GAO, and in several other pieces of investigative work, it's clear that the FBI was not following its own established procedures for processing information from social media. And so maybe just in short, and Ryan, I'll start with you. Why? Obviously, neither of you have a crystal ball. Um, I wish you did. But why do we think that the Bureau struggled so much with this? You know, I think the stuff that, that Quinta brought up in terms of them being worried about getting on the bad side of Trump is definitely a component of this, right? Like, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion around why there wasn't a joint memo written ahead of this. And who the hell would want to sign themselves up to say, hey, I think that the upcoming rally that the president is holding is a national security threat, uh, right? Like, I think that there's the potential for terrorism in this, right? No one would want to sign that memo. And I think we're still sort of figuring out some of the pieces have come together about when that decision uh, was made. But, you know, the fact that there's the only memo we saw about this came out of the, the Norfolk office is, is, is sort of wild. Uh, <laughs> that that was the only component that we've, we've now seen c- come to the surface. But I think the parlor stuff is particularly interesting because, you know, now there's all of this focus on did the FBI have too close of a relationship w- with Twitter? And it is astonishing to me that the, the takeaway, uh, that, there, that seems to be out there in some corners is that the FBI uh, was working too closely with tech giants, considering what actually happened on, on January 6th. All of this was was known. You just had to sort of like be on the internet. And I think that that is sort of the astonishing thing that we've seen in a lot of these investigations is that it just didn't seem like the FBI was really just keeping up with what was happening out on the open web. And uh, there's this notion that came up in, in in the course of, it wasn't published, but came up in the course of the January 6th committee's work of this idea of lone wolf bias. Um, and I think that that's a, a big component of this is that the the Bureau was so focused on lone wolf actors and and that's essentially how they approached January 6th, right? They 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 did go knock on some doors ahead of January 6th and, uh, and went to individual domestic terrorism uh, suspects or targets. Uh, they went to their their doors and, you know, checked out what they were doing. And I think basically dissuade, dissuaded some of them uh, from actually coming to the Capitol on January 6th. And of course, they did arrest Enrique Tarrio uh, right before the January 6th attack, as soon as he sort of landed um, at Reagan and, and drove in. And, you know, he's pulled over when he was in the back of an Uber. So they they took some action, but I think it was so focused on individual actors without talking about just the broader threat. You know, the, the way we sort I sort of abbreviate this now is the normie threat, right? Because that's the way it's been uh, referred to in a lot of a lot of the trials, especially by the Proud Boys, is this idea of riling up the normies. And I think that's largely what we saw on on January 6th. Sure, there were organized groups, but it was more just the the mass of people and how many people were 
were convinced that the election was stolen. And there is a little bit of talk about this in, in some of these investigations when the January 6th committee talked to a lot of high ranking officials. It was just sort of obvious to them that this was going to be a threat or they that's what they are saying now. It's like, yeah, everyone sort of knew this could be a thing. You know, no, we didn't have any ex, you know explicit intel about invasions of the Capitol. They said, although they did, frankly, they there's a lot of stuff that is was in the system saying, you know, storm the Capitol, occupy the Capitol. They had all of that um, internally. Maybe it didn't reach to their levels, but it was somewhere uh, within their system. And I think that that's, you know, that's what they really didn't, didn't prepare for. If you, that what they needed to prepare for was, you know, think of this as intelligence that's informing your, your law enforcement response and your posture. And there's just no way that a couple of bike racks and some snow fencing was going to be what you would have around the Capitol if, when you see the, the extent of the threats that we saw leading up to January 6th. And if you just sort of follow the plain logic, you know, and the, the follow the plain language of what people were talking about, they thought the election was stolen. And it makes sense that some people who thought that the election was stolen and that it was 1776 2.0 and that the Joe uh, Biden regime was going to come in and take over and the country was doomed and being sold out to China, makes sense that some people might do something about that, especially those who didn't have a lot to lose. And even people who did have a lot to lose. I think that's one thing that I've just been really struck by. You know, you have such a wide range of people who acted just who went wild that day uh, and ranging from, you know, the usual suspects, people you would anticipate would do this sort of thing um, from just, you know, hardcore white supremacists to people living on the fringes, um, you know, the QAnon folks. And then you have other people who, had really well-established family lives and had solid jobs and, but also just believe these lies about the election. Um, and that, it was just a real, it was a real tricky thing for, I think the Bureau to deal with and they, and they didn't do a, a great job of it. One moment that I think is kind of illustrative that actually happened afterwards that kind of just, I think that maybe even Quinta and I went back and forth with on, um, on Twitter was that there was this, uh, there, a Politico ran a story uh, in a few months after January 6th about an individual who went inside inside the Capitol. And the investigation into that individual didn't start when that uh, when that story was published. It started two months later when somebody sent in a tip mentioning that story. That was sort of just remarkable to me that like, <laughs> there's just nobody on Twitter. Like, right? there's just nobody like just who's like common sense absorbing news or, hey, sets up a couple of Google alerts to say this person went inside the Capitol, right? The fact that like you have to wait for somebody to send that tip in just, it, it really is just a huge failure of open source intelligence uh, to me. And, you know, there are certainly First Amendment concerns that you would want to have there. You don't want to have the Bureau just collecting data on folks, but like, if there's a story about somebody who admitted to illegal activity or, you know, who is documented committing illegal activity, that seems like something that you'd want to, you know, ingest in some way. And there just wasn't somebody working that. And I think that sort of was the uh, the issue ahead of January 6th, even when these tips were coming into various field offices. The last point I'll make was like, there is, you know, to the extent that they didn't know the, the, this idea that they didn't know what Trump's words could do. I mean, somebody literally, the, a confidential human source to the Bureau. So that means it's it's not just going into that general tip uh, hotline that, you know, somebody is sitting around at a computer at a facility in West Virginia and clicking through each one of those individually. That's not how this tip got processed in. This tip came from a confidential human source. So it's something that should have had priority within the Bureau. And this individual, as soon as Trump sent out that tweet, 
<laughs> they I've 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 now seen the tip that they sent in uh, saying you know that the the far right was considering his will be wild tweet a call to arms day of that tweet right like they're saying here's the immediate reaction to this call to arms that's how they're seeing it and the idea that uh, I think that there's a mix of reasons why they didn't take that uh, as seriously as as you could have because you know frankly. The FBI could have just sat on the replies to that tweet or sat on, you know, sat on Reddit or sat on some of these forums where this was happening on, you know, the Donald.win and just read the reaction to that and how they were considering this. Like that was when January 6th really started to form. And that was also when people were sort of shutting down for the, the Christmas holidays and, and were sort of, you know, just exhausted after a long year and maybe weren't on top as on top of things as, as they should be. Quinta, what else do you um, want to offer on this this question of why the Bureau struggled so much with this? I think the other thing to flag is, as Ryan says, you know, there are absolutely there are First Amendment considerations here. And I think it is important that, you know, the Bureau be constrained by that for obvious reasons. That said, um, one of the sort of concerning things that we have seen about the Bureau's preparation is testimony by FBI Director Christopher Wray and then, uh, I believe, Assistant Director for Counterterrorism Jill Sanborn, who testified in the months after uh, the insurrection that the FBI was restrained in looking at at stuff on the internet, and this is kind of what Ryan and I were joking about on Twitter, because of the First Amendment under FBI procedures. But the thing is that if you look at that, the actual manual they're talking about, and I wrote a a brutally long piece about this on Lawfare back in the day for anyone who's interested. Um, it actually says very clearly, like, you can use the internet. Um, and that's also suggested to me that perhaps there was some confusion uh, maybe within the Bureau that wasn't clarified about what they can and can't look at. But certainly the, the fact that, as Ryan said, you know, that somebody had to like send in a Politico story as a tip rather than an agent or an analyst just reading the story on Politico uh, suggests that there's some there's some problems here. I mean, Ryan, you mentioned the the Norfolk Field Office report. I know Molly wanted to talk about this. And my main question about that is like, why Norfolk? <laughs> what was it about <laughs> Norfolk that they just had their finger on the pulse? Because for <laughs> listeners who, are, who aren't familiar, this is like, I believe the one document that the Bureau produced in advance of the six saying, hey, this is going to be bad. And yeah. the FBI has what, like almost 60 field offices. And for some reason, this office, they were the only one that was on the ball. It's a good question. I think there was also, I want to say, like a bomb technician analyst or something like right afterwards who might have put together an email or something. There's, But there is like some email traffic about this. And we've it's, it's heavily redacted and not searchable. But I did end up looking into this on the FBI's uh, website and some of the documentation that's come out um, as a result of this. And it's really tough to put together the narrative just because of all of the redactions. But there is some talk about, you know, whether or not they want to make this a joint report or not, and why not. And I think some of that sort of goes offline. And maybe that was a, a talk that somebody had, um, you know, over the phone instead of putting that down on email. But, you know, frankly, I think that's a big component of this is there's just such a there's such a hesitancy within the Bureau about generating paper. Um, and I think that in a lot of investigations that make sense, but it's such a it's such an impediment to investigating anything that happens on the internet, right? Because, you know, how have the sleuths investigated this? How have the people who have identified hundreds and hundreds of people who stormed the Capitol? How have they all been organizing? They've been doing it on chat rooms, right? The equivalent of Slack. And 
the FBI doesn't have that, right? They're doing all of this over email. And I just, it makes me want to like, I don't even know, like, I don't know what the metaphor is, but like the idea of trying to run this investigation over email and whatever their crappy instant messenger system is within the bureau just makes me want to pull my hair out, right? Like it seems absolutely maddening. And there's so many inefficiencies that are introduced just because of the way that they organize uh, within the bureau. And, you know, frankly, you get it like in the Proud Boys trial. Now there have been a couple of these messages where it's sort of water cooler talk that people have sort of joking around. It's, you know, there is some discussion of whether or not uh, one of these Proud Boy um, sort of hangers on was maybe having an affair with two different Proud Boys or maybe was, you know, there was some sort of love triangle going on and and FBI agents were uh, sort of making jokes about that in this internal system that they have. And then that comes out in discovery, right? So I think that there's there's a little bit of that that nobody wants to sort of write this write this stuff down, but you can't run an investigation that way, especially in the intelligence space without putting some of this in writing. It can't be all these phone calls and then we don't know what people said like there has to be some way to organize this. And I think, I think that's, that's really been an impediment for the Bureau, both uh, looking, you know, at, at the intelligence issues, as well as looking at uh, even just running these investigations in the aftermath uh, of the January 6th attack. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So one thing we've known about that Norfolk report that uh, you both just talked about since basically the earliest days of the investigation is that there are questions about how it was shared. And this question of information sharing that Quinta brought up earlier, both within the organizations we're talking about and then between them, um, comes up again and again. Quinta, maybe I'll start with you here. Like, Why is this such a persistent problem and where does it seem to uh, have been especially consequential on January 6th. Yeah, it really does emerge as a problem that is not only, you know, there there are certain agencies that seem to have had real, real difficulty with it. Capitol Police, I think, stands out. And Molly, I know, I think you've, you've looked at Capitol Police more closely now than I have, so I'm interested in your thoughts here as well. But also between agencies. And that, I found it really striking because... I don't want to draw too clean a, a line between 9-11 and January 6th, but one of the big uh, lessons after 9-11 um, was that we, you know, needed more communication, or this is the argument, between intelligence agencies that we wanted to move away from what was called stovepiping, where 
the FBI kind of had its fiefdom and the CIA had its fiefdom and never the twain shall meet. And so it's very striking to see the same kinds of problems crop up in these reports. Again, very different situation. Obviously, this is purely domestic. It's First Amendment protected. It's very different. But it really jumps out at me. I mean, in just in terms of, of Capitol Police, in, in uh, interviews that the January 6th committee has conducted, there's uh, information there about how there, are, there aren't calls happening between the heads of the intelligence division at Capitol Police and the leadership of Capitol Police. There's rank and file Capitol Police officers don't get material that the leadership has gotten, like I mentioned. There are all these questions about different agencies not getting material because I believe there's one point where Capitol Police doesn't receive material because they're not technically an intelligence agency to begin with. There's also there are all these problems on the Capitol Police board, which seems to be a, a very troubled organization that nobody actually understood quite how how it, it worked. So the amount of crossed wires here is pretty stunning. I do wonder how much of that speaks to just kind of like general institutional caution. I think obviously Capitol Police is sort of differently situated than the Bureau. So I don't know if it's stemming from the reasons that that Ryan just identified when it comes to, you know, sort of producing documentation. But whether it's caution, whether it's just, you know, institutional confusion. Um, I guess one one other thing I believe uh, this is on Capitol Police, and we've talked about this, Molly, was that there there's a change in leadership. Um, so sort of inter-office politics. Um, it's really not totally clear what it is. And I, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that the GA report, one of their some of their recommendations are essentially like, you need to figure this out. But it crops up just again and again and again. And we should also mention, I think that, you know, the the data miner, the the contract with data miner, uh, which is sort of the social media gathering tool that the FBI was using, uh, expired on December 31st, right? So just perfect timing to go down right before January 6th. Um, and they didn't have the new system up and running yet. They weren't ahead of that. Again, holidays, <laughs> federal government, uh, I think, plays a, plays a role there. But I think on the information sharing side, that definitely played a role because I, they don't explicitly say this in any email that I've read, but there's definitely a focus on keeping the information that they were sharing with law enforcement on the classified side. And I think that it's not an unreasonable uh, interpretation to make of the reason that they were doing that is because if they put something on the non-classified side, it like automatically leaks, right? If they put out a joint intelligence bulletin massively to local law enforcement, that thing leaks immediately. And it, you know, then there's news stories about how the Bureau is saying uh, that Trump's rally is a national security threat. You know, you get, you people get in trouble at DHS, you know, people get in trouble at the FBI, they all come after them. There's a, you know, the, the house, uh, <laughs> house Republicans go after them, the administration, internally, the administration goes after them. There's a whole uh, set of uh, reverberations that you would see from that. Whereas if they put it on the classified side and sort of make it as, as intelligence, even though they're referring to open source intelligence, sometimes they just, if they overclassify it, it's less likely to leak. And there's definitely indications that they were worried about uh, leaks that we've seen come out in some of these paper in some of the paperwork. Yeah, just to um because Quinta asked me, I'll just say that I think one of the things that really comes out if you spend some time with the body of um, investigative material related to the Capitol Police is the the challenges that basically all of these investigations have faced in 
choices about how far to go back in time in tracing the explanations for what happened. And so um, within the Capitol Police, um, as Quinta mentioned, there is in, I believe, the fall of 2020, the hiring of some new folks to lead the Capitol Police's intelligence division. Um, So even in the best possible scenario, those folks would have been relatively new on their jobs um, in those last several months of 2020 in preparation for um, both what turned out to be January 6th, but also even sort of more expected things like the inauguration of a new president and the inauguration of a new president in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, And so those challenges, and then layered on top of that, there does appear to have been some conflict within that arm of the um, of the Capitol Police around sort of the, the new leadership and changes they um, they wanted to make, and so this is just again a like in one example of this bigger, broader question that we've been raising about these investigations going back to, and if you look at the piece that Quinta mentioned that she and I wrote about the Senate Rules and Homeland Security Committee's report in I believe June of. Um, 2021, one of the things that we note is that that report looks at basically the weeks before the insurrection and not the months or years. And there are a lot of, I think, hard questions. Um, and some of these questions about intelligence sharing fall into that category as well about you know how far do we have to go back uh, to really uh, dig into this. So the next thing I want to uh, talk about is, and Quinta, you touched, I mean, maybe both of you touched on this a little bit before, um, but the, one of the approaches that this GAO report takes to analyzing the intelligence collection, sharing, and action situation in advance of January 6th is comparing what the various agencies did before January 6th to what they did before some other major demonstrations in D.C. in 2020, including the racial justice protest after the murder of um, George Floyd. And GAO talks about how from a preparation perspective, the racial justice protests are entirely comparable to January 6th. But running under basically all of the investigative work on the intelligence failures is this question of whether those racial justice protests affected the government's approach before January 6th. So based on the evidence we have, what what do you think? Did the Floyd protest make the agencies skittish? And or is the reluctance to take seriously right-wing extremism indicative of a deeper problem in our intelligence gathering and response capabilities? I think it's a little bit of both. <laughs> I think the I think that, you know, there was definitely concern about optics, and we saw that in some of the discussion where, you know, you did have these instances in in the wake of George Floyd, where of course you had uh, you know, National Guardsmen just lined up on the steps of uh, the Lincoln Memorial with their faces covered in broad daylight. And, you know, that became one of those photos that went viral then and then went viral again after January 6th when you were comparing sort of the response. But I do think, you know, it's fair to say that there's a different posture in the in the wake of some of the protests that we saw over the summer because this was an ongoing event and there were it happened over several days, right? It wasn't all concentrated at, at one particular point. And there was, you know, a history that you could point to, right? We sh- we can't overlook the fact that there was, uh, I think, a bathroom facility that was on the edge of uh, Lafayette Park uh, that was destroyed. There were there were incidents of uh, of uh, force that were used against members uh, of law enforcement. You know, bottles being uh, being thrown at them. You know, it was a much different sort of scenario, and it was also unfolding on a on a, a, lo- a longer time frame, right? There were businesses that were looted. There was a lot of bad stuff that happened uh, during some of the the rioting um, that we saw 
in the May and uh, June months of 2020. And I, I think that they didn't want to overreach, but I definitely think that there was also a component of this that was, you know, if not somewhat political in terms of this was the back the blue crowd, right? This was the people saying that, you know, we support you. And it is still remarkable to me whenever I, I'm watching get another one of these hundreds of hours of videos that I've watched where you'll have these moments where the 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 rioters are almost trying to like, you know, convince uh, <laughs> convince law enforcement to, to take their side or saying, you know, it's going to be fine. Just, you know, switch. Why aren't you guys backing us? And I'm almost confused that they weren't, you know, abandoning their jobs and, and turning on, uh, turning on their country uh, <laughs> at, the, at the, on the flip of a dime because of some things that, you know, they read on Facebook. Um, they, it was, that's what they were sort of trying to do is say, they're trying to lure them into say, hey, you're going to continue to get paid, you know, stand with us, help us, <laughs> help us arrest these politicians. I was, I was talking to one January 6th defendant, uh, who just came off trial and is awaiting his uh, sentencing at the moment. And it was, it was remarkable because I was having this conversation with him where he was like, like, listen, I didn't, I didn't think we should, you know, use violence. I just thought we should arrest uh, politicians. And I thought that, <laughs> I thought that they would join us. I thought that uh, law enforcement would join us and we would all turn together and we would just arrest politicians, um, you know, lawfully, according to him, he thought that this was something that was allowed under the constitution. It would just be a citizen's arrest that you could kidnap <laughs> a sitting member of Congress is what he's really talking about there. Uh, but just explaining it in a way that he thought was, was lawful. So that, I mean, there was definitely a, a component to this where I think there was this assumption that they were the back the blue crowd. But what we saw and what we've seen in a lot of these Proud Boys chats that are now coming out in this active trial is that there was this turn against law enforcement. They didn't like how law enforcement handled things uh, during the two precipitating events uh, that we saw in the lead up to January 6th, which was the Million MAGA March in uh, November and then the uh, the secondary event in uh, December, which were sort of the precursors to uh, January 6th. And, you know, that's what law enforcement was essentially preparing for is what we've seen. They were expecting something along the lines of what happened in November, what happened in December. They were expecting, you know, left-wing groups to show up in mass to oppose these right-wing groups. And they were expecting to see conflict between those two groups. That was largely what they were prepared for. They were thinking that once night fell on January 6th, that was when these groups were going to go after one another. Uh, that's what they that's what they were preparing for. And there's, there's one email I'm just thinking of now that was sent by the park police to the FBI where the FBI was just checking in on what kind of intelligence the park police had ahead of, ahead of time. And park police just said park police guy was on vacation. Uh, but he, uh, he sent back something, I think the day of, or like in the hours before the January 6th attack saying, yeah, it's going to be the same thing we saw in November and December, same sort of deal. Here's a repeat. Once again, blah, 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 you know, okay, see you later, back to vacation, I'm trying to take some time off, right? So that's, that's essentially what, uh, that what law enforcement was prepared for, and what they thought was going into this, and, and just not being up on some of these forums, and uh, recognizing more broadly, even though they had the raw intelligence to suggest this, that Congress itself was the target, this was different. Uh, they thought that they could intervene, they thought that they could stop uh, the peaceful transfer of power uh, from happening. Quinta, what are your thoughts on sort of how we should think about the preparation for January 6th in relation to what had happened earlier in 2020? Well, first, I will say that email exchange is like my vacation nightmare. That's exactly what I'm terrified is going to happen every time I go on vacation. So now that's going to haunt my dreams. Um, (laughs) I I will say so the, uh, the GAO report has a really striking example of what I would argue was an overreaction on the part of the federal government to the George Floyd protests, 
sort of leading to a pulling back that really created problems on January 6th. And that has to do with uh, DHS uh, I&A, which is the Intelligence and Analysis Division. So around the George Floyd protests, um, listeners might remember, there were also protests around the federal courthouse in Portland specifically. And that became really a big focus for the federal government and for for Trump sort of arguing that, you know, protesters were engaging in insurrection and all this kind of stuff. And around that I&A collected open source information, including, I should say, about Lawfare's editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes. So there's a, we, Lawfare plays a part of this story as well. And uh, there was a big backlash about this because in, init- in addition to Ben, there was also information collected from uh, tweets from a New York Times reporter. Generally, you don't love to see a government security agency collecting information on reporters. And so uh, the JO report says that analysts in INA were really, really worried that they would come under scrutiny if they collected more information and sort of kept an eye on things in the run up to the sixth. And that uh, in in the words of the report, and that this the sort of desire within the agency to make sure that analysts were only uh, keeping tabs on information that seemed like it really did go too far, really was a threat of violence, that this, and I quote, likely caused collectors to hold back threat information related to January 6th. So I think that's a pretty striking statement. Um, it's definitely true that we saw in previous reports, um, including from that Senate Rules and Homeland Security report, that uh, agencies like the Pentagon, for example, were really, really hesitant to deploy the National Guard precisely because of the backlash to deploying the Guard in really aggressive fashion, I should say, and in ways that um, uh, led to a real rebuke from the uh, DOD Inspector General in terms of including, you know, uh, having a helicopter buzz peaceful protesters that that really held the Pentagon back as well. So this is the information in the report and the GAO report on this is sort of one more example of that. I just think that, like, I really think the open source thing is something that there really needs to be this moment about that we need to have this broader discussion. And I think it was a missed opportunity for the January 6th committee because there, there is this um, discussion with one of the individuals that they uh, that they spoke with, uh, Danelle Harvin, I believe, uh, who was uh, in the essentially the fusion center in D.C., the one that sort of got cut out of some of these communications because they weren't, quote unquote, a designated law enforcement agency. And, and in reality, that was uh, <laughs> he was collecting some of the best stuff ahead of January 6th and saw this coming, I think, more than a lot of other people did. And when you contrast what he what he talks about and how he experienced January 6 with how the FBI experienced January 6, I mean, it's just like it's it's like it's like fast forwarding a decade, like right, the bureau was just so far back, you literally have high ranking officials going over from Maine justice heading across the street to the Hoover building going to there, going to see what sort of uh, intelligence they were gathering at the FBI. And, you know, they got a couple of TVs on and they're making phone calls, right? And then they're like, all right, fine, let's rush over to the Washington field office. And we rush over to the Washington field office and same sort of deal. They've got the cable news on and they're also, you know, making phone calls and everyone's shouting what's going on. Um, and then you flash over to how uh, Danelle, you know, experienced this. And he said, you know, listen, I pulled up some live streams and I was watching this all unfold online on on open source on social media. Um, that's how he he got to it. And meanwhile, you know, the bureau's back there looking at the uh, the wide angled shots that that you know cable news was able to set up from 
a long distance away and these sort of wide shots of the Capitol and some people on the stairs and, and not seeing what was happening on Twitter. If you're experiencing it that day, seeing this unfold live and seeing these awful images of law enforcement being overrun uh, that you could just watch on a lot of live streams or on clips that were being posted on Twitter, right? That's the way that you saw what was actively happening on the ground that day. And the Bureau was just so far behind on that. And I think it is this interesting thing, right? Because you don't want you don't want the Bureau over collecting and sort of just observing this information for the sake of it. But at the same time, if something this massive is just unfolding in open, unavailable open source channels that you can just watch, it seems like they're just really behind on that. And I think a lot of that has to do with you know, they're, they're, the way that they sort of handle technology um, internally and the way that, you know, they have stuff on the high side and the low side, you know, on the classified side and on the unclassified side. So Ryan, that actually opens up a really great space for the last question that I wanted to pose to the two of you, which is basically given what we know, which is not everything, what comes next? What do agencies need to do to prevent these kinds of failures in the future? And so Ryan, you talked a little bit there about sort of a posture towards technology and open source information. What else do you think um, is necessary to, again, kind of prevent these sorts of failures, God forbid, the next time this happens? Yeah, I really just do think, you know, technology is is such a big part of this because it really does just put on display the disparity between this Hollywood image of the FBI and the practical reality of the FBI, uh, where, you know, you think of it sort of being a them having screens that you can point to in the air. If you just think of the way that the that that Hollywood portrays the FBI, right? It's it's they're just the best, right? There they've got this here. They click something, click something, boom, boom, boom. Oh, focus. <laughs> Let me enhance this image, and boom, here's everything that we need to know about this uh, this person and <laughs> their entire life. And that's just not what uh, the bureau has. Uh, and I think that their their focus that we've seen in the the aftermath of this investigation on on paperwork and documentation shows this, right? This was something that is an entirely video investigation. Pretty much every moment of January 6th in some ways captured on video from multiple angles. And that's the way that this investigation is being run. And that's the way that um, online sleuths are identifying so much of this information is just by scouring these videos and organizing it in really cool and productive ways. And I just, I, the Bureau just isn't doing that. And I think that's a that's a huge problem for them that how they're organizing that on both sides. But you know, sadly, I think it is a really a missed opportunity because the the bureau was able to uh, resist some of the investigation that we that, that the January sixth committee was was running because they could point to say, hey, listen, you know, we have these ongoing investigations going. We don't want to impact any of our ongoing investigations. Oh, we gosh, gee, Willie, we wish we could just tell you more about how we screwed up, but we can't because oh, there's these ongoing investigations going, we wouldn't want to step on any of these investigations. And, you know, DHS couldn't do that because they don't have any role in uh, these investigations. So they had a, you know, turnover, I think a lot more. Same thing with the Secret Service. Some of the best stuff that we know about the FBI actually came via the Secret Service because the FBI sent it to the Secret Service. Um, and so that's what we know a lot about on that side uh, in, in, the, in the aftermath. But I mean, there's going to need to be some some real broad considerations of, of how the FBI goes forward and the people that they're recruiting, because I think that technology is going to be such an important part of these investigations going forward. You know, facial recognition technology is going to be a huge component of this. We have to have serious discussions about how we can use that, when we can use that. 
I think that they need to do a lot better hiring on the tech side. And that's a really, really big challenge uh, for the Bureau. Because, you know, if you're a tech whiz, it's it's really tough to resist that pull uh, of going to uh, a big tech company, which can give you a nice salary, can set you up someplace where you actually want to live, isn't going to, you know, send you someplace randomly in the country where you really don't want to be would also take into consideration whether or not your spouse has a has a job that you know might be important to them right i think that there's a lot of this that's just so much built out of the 1960s when you know the fbi was completely you know white male agents considering what they want to do and like that's what the fbi still kind of is is looking for and in reality i think it's just they they need tech whizzes they need their uh, they need to be able to recruit people who have a lot of technical skills and maintain those people and and keep them um, in the bureau despite uh, the salary that they could be pulling in elsewhere. And I think that I mean it just must be so frustrating if you're in the bureau to be hitting up against these these this bureaucracy all the time um, that's limiting what you can do. Um, and then you know looking at the outside world and what a bunch of amateurs quote unquote were able to throw together in the aftermath of, of January sixth and you know identifying people left and right why while you know the the FBI was you know just trying to to deal with this onslaught of uh, uh, of tips that they had uh, coming in and. You know, screwing up often, right? Though the case that I that still really stands out to me is that you know the FBI raided a woman's home because they thought she stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop, and it doesn't even like they the person they are looking for it barely actually looked like, and and no open source investigator would have said this is that woman, right? Like they would have done a facial recognition check. The earlobes is what what would have done it because the woman that they were looking for had disconnected earlobes. The woman uh, that they <laughs> the woman that they actually raided her home had connected earlobes. And so they ended up, you know, storming uh, a woman's house in Alaska, thinking that she had Nancy Pelosi's laptop and um, coming up short, right? So that's something that could have been prevented with some open source uh, research and just some better investigations. And, you know, they trusted their their human intel there when they really needed to look more deeply at the stuff that you could just look at on open source. And they could have prevented that from happening altogether. And, you know, there's been, I think, a lot of occasions like that uh, where the the Bureau has just really missed the ball. And I think it's it's something that we need to have uh, broader discussions about. And frankly, I don't think an IG report coming internally from the Inspector General at the Justice Department is going to bring about the changes uh, that are needed. And, and now we're going to get into this world where the Republican-controlled House is going in a completely different direction with the FBI. And we're not going to have uh, a serious investigation of of those failures. We're going to have these sort of nonsense conspiracies about ray ups and you know oh how many CHSs did they have inside and oh was this a Fed surrection was the FBI actually did the FBI actually cause January six just completely non serious uh, investigations when we could have had this moment that I think we just missed the opportunity for about what the FBI uh, needed to change and the lessons that could have come out of it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of worried about how uh, this all plays out in the coming months and years. Quinta, anything you want to add on where we go from here? I mean, I think one thing that I've been really curious about is whether or not the Bureau and other agencies have been doing enough to counter far-right extremism in the wake of the six and Ryan all I'll take this opportunity to actually ask you another question, which is, you know, whether you think that they are. Obviously, you've been reporting on the investigation of January 6th, where we've racked up, I think, over a thousand uh, people charged at this point. 
that is certainly pretty aggressive and and we we're only halfway through at the same time though it does seem to me that you know there's not a lot of the factors that led to the bureau being sort of hesitant to really get in there in advance of the six seem to certainly still be present as we've said i mean do you think that the federal government has corrected adequately for its shortcomings in that respect I think they're they're in a better posture than they were, but I think that there was also the thought that they were in a better posture ahead of January 6th. Because I remember talking, you know, to Mary McCord, the former uh, DOJ official, um, top national security official, right in the aftermath of, of uh, the November 2020 election, and saying, you know, that uh, that law enforcement was probably in a better posture. They are more aware of this. Um, this was before, you know, January 6th was anything really on anyone's radar. And, you know, now we see from the report that she was sending in stuff to the uh, to them all the time. But I think in the aftermath that they have gotten a little bit better with their right-wing extremism, but I think that there's still this internal pushback because there is just this political pushback to anything, to the FBI uh, looking into any right-wing figures at all, because you have a lot of right wing folks within the FBI who are, you know, behind the scenes, not so, uh, not so enthused about some of these January 6 investigations. And that sort of come up, bubbled out into public now where you did have cases that were just being killed by FBI agents, because they didn't think this was something that they should be spending time on. So you do have a lot of internal issues, uh, I think, unfolding with that. Uh, just one quick, one quick story um, that I think sort of wraps this all up for me is, so there was this, in, in 2016, there was this uh, militia group, you know, a bunch of gr- big Trump fans that plotted uh, to slaughter Muslim refugees in, in Kansas. Um, and uh, that was something that the FBI ended up having a confidential human source on. They ended up wrapping this up uh, in October of, of 2016, just before the election. And, um, you know, that case went through the system over the course of the, uh, the Trump administration. They ended up, you know, getting sentenced to 25, 26, uh, 30 years in, in federal prison. And in the aftermath of that, after uh, the CHS, the confidential human source, testified in court, and I, I covered some of it actually, you know, ended up sort of striking up a, uh, uh, I guess, relationship with him and talking to him, ended up interviewing him, talking about what he, what he had done, uh, what made him make that decision to, you know, sort of help the FBI build a case against these individuals. Um, but he was someone who testified publicly, who was out there, um, you know, Hulu ended up, uh, Hulu and ABC ended up doing a documentary focused on him. Um, and I talked to him right after January 6th. Um, and, and what he told me then was that the FBI had, had come back to him and, and had uh, asked him uh, what he was sort of seeing out there, right? That's how desperate they were for tips, is that somebody who was completely burnt as a confidential human source, uh, they went back to him and w- what was he seeing out there? Was there anything that was coming on to his, his radar? And I think that shows sort of how desperate they were to, to find out what, what was happening. Because, you know, here's someone who everyone knows is, is a confidential human source now. He's not seeing anything extra special than other than, I guess, what his Facebook friends are, are posting. He didn't have any particular insights, but, but they went back to him. And, you know, sadly, he's, he's, since, uh, he's since died. He passed away after all of this. But I think that sort of illustrated to me that, ah, uh, man, the FBI really got got caught uh, flat-footed here. And there's just been so much political pushback to the January 6th investigation and the this notion that these are patriots that, I don't know, I think it's 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 going to be tough. And you just worry that 
one of these people, one of these thousand plus people that uh, have been identified to the FBI but have not yet been arrested are, are going to do something bad before uh, they're actually uh, taken into custody, if they are, if we make that statute of limitations expiration at the five-year mark after January 6th. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you, Quinta. Thank you, Ryan, for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.